0: Hello everybody, my name is Angus Phillips and I'm Director of the Oxford International Centre for Publishing. Today I'm in conversation with Dan Banyard, who is Publishing Director and Head of Non-Fiction Publishing at Michael Joseph, which is a division of Penguin Random House. So firstly, Dan, many thanks for talking to me today.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me.
0: And uh, perhaps we could just start by, could I ask you to describe your role at Michael Joseph?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. So, um. I've been there for a bit over 10 years now and I I run the non-fiction team. Um, MJ is a a division um, of Penguin that goes back a long way and has always had um, what you could describe as a commercial uh, focus insofar as we're aiming for um, big readerships, generalist audiences um, and a a, a key criteria for me and for the team um, for fiction as well as non-fiction that we we look for is... um, is is about how many copies we'll be looking to sell. You know, um, you compare that with other parts of Penguin or other publishing companies. It, you know, the, the criteria might be quite different. It might be, um, you know, is this book going to win a prize? I'd love it if books that I publish do win prizes, um, but it's more about can we reach a big audience and create bestsellers out of it.
0: And what have been the highlights of uh, your publishing program over the last few years?
1: Um, well, one, one of the big um, hits we had a few years ago was um, a series of parody books involving the Ladybird um, brands, which, um, which were huge, we sold millions of copies of those, um, that really hit a nerve. Um, I published a couple of books with um, GCHQ, um, some puzzle books, which was a very interesting, quite challenging experience. Um, we've published Stephen Fry's fiction and nonfiction for quite some time. Um, there's quite a lot of celebrity led stuff that, that we do. Um, for me, I find it, I think, um, very satisfying when, um, you take a, a book by an unknown author. Um, but it still reaches a really large audience because of the elements to it that just really hit a spot. And, um. Perhaps a good example of that is a book called *The Salt Path* um, by Raina Wynn, which has been um, it has been a prize-winning, um, huge success for us.
0: Yeah, no, I think. Oh, sorry, I
1: should also just mention because it's, it's a really big one is um, Mrs. Hinch, oh, cool.
0: um, yeah.
1: which I think is, is quite a well-known one, um, uh, an Instagram cleaning uh, sensation. Um, we've sold um, a staggering number of copies of her books, and they're doing very well under lockdown.
0: And you're one of the very few people in the publishing industry to have downloaded the complete set of sales <laughs> data for books in the UK over what period?
1: Uh, well, um, as far back as you can go, I mean, I, I, I do feel I'm probably quite odd, um, uh, probably in many ways, but certainly in the respect that I have um, have done that. And I, I've always been fascinated by what Bookscan can, um, uh, can show us and reveal about trends. Um, Uh, and and buying patterns, but um, uh, a few years ago, um, I think four or five years ago now, I I decided that I really wanted to take it very seriously and do a a really big deep dive into it. Now, um, for people who are familiar with with BookScan, um, they might know that normally um, the reports that it generates will yield around 5,000 records. Um, so if you want to, to look at the, the full range of um, uh, non-fiction history um, from Bookscan, 5,000 records will only get you down as far as books that sell about, I think probably if you did it right now, about 37,000 copies. So anything that sold fewer than 35,000 um, uh, copies or so um, isn't going to get picked up. If you want to drill down to books that have only sold one copy, which is in itself quite a fun um, and uh, edifying activity. Um, You have to do a lot of um, combined searches. It's it's a long process, um, which as I say, is probably not something everyone would want to do, but what it does is generate um, uh, closer to 400,000 records. What you can then do is start looking back and finding um, Um, uh, you know books from you know the 1900s um, right through the 20th century and of course you can do it for fiction as well as I have done Um, and it's approach you can you can do outside the UK Um, the reason I did that is because um, it it struck me that you know to to really start analysing um, uh, sales patterns in a big way you you can't just stop at 5,000 records you really need to um, to go a bit deeper than
0: that and so you were kind of on the hunt for trends, and uh, you know, could you find some patterns in that data?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can you can learn from an approach like that. And I think the three things that I would pick out as being really important would be um, and ways to look at this kind of data. I think are uh, um, ascertaining what the peak historical volume is for an area. Because that's something which varies enormously. Um, Looking at the combined volume for an area, again, that tells you something potentially quite different. Um, Because if you looked alone at the peak historical volume, you might see a book that sells 1.2 million copies and think, well, that's a huge area. But it's only by looking um, at the broader area, how many copies uh within that area have been sold over the last 10 20 years um relatively to you know another area do you get a you know more of a sense of um how big a motivation it is within the market um so peak historical volume combined volume and i think the the other one which i think is really key is looking at the frequency with which books um in an area or responding to a particular motivation will sell over a particular volume now you might say um how often do books in this area sell over 100000 copies or how often do they sell over 10000 copies that's um that's a particularly useful exercise to do because where that's helped me is to identify cycles because if you see Quite rapidly, that a certain area um, generates a book that will sell a x volume but only every five to ten years, then you can start seeing those kind of cyclical um, patterns which emerge it 's much harder to do if you 've got an area where there's a consistently a very high volume year on year
0: so this has kind of set you off on the track of looking at motivations and the book market, and uh, firstly, I want to ask you because You want to make a distinction between the experienced value and the expectancy value of a book. So how does that work?
1: Um, Well, this this is a distinction that I felt was useful to draw um, because it enables you to start looking at um, uh, books in the abstract uh, as propositions um, and to start picking apart the elements which make them um, in the abstract before someone has actually read it because... Our purchases, you know, we may sort of use the Amazon look inside function, but basically we haven't experienced a book um, when we bought it, when we buy it. It is based on our expectation of it um, and the, the the value that that holds for us. Now, um, one thing to say there is that my experienced value, once I've read it, might feed back into your expectancy value. So if I tell you, well, this book is terrible or this book is very good that may raise or lower your expectancy value and there is a, a feedback loop a loop which happens there um and over time you see word of mouth kick in when um experienced value is consistently um higher uh, than expectancy value it just keeps on pushing that expectancy value um up um Information cascades around books um, and any form of media happen faster and more widely than ever before. Um, But the way in which that works is something which has always been around. And I found it fascinating to see that um, in the early 1900s, in the American market, there was this period where publishers um, uh, had this habit of what they called booming books where they would market books um, that were coming out from them um, with ridiculously sort of hyperbolic um terms you know the best book you will read this year and it for several years this went on um and got so excessive that the audience became uh, very cynical towards it and in very obvious terms what happened was that the the as they pushed up the expectancy value the experience value as people actually read these books was consistently lower and hence the cynicism setting in so um, but to go back to the, the, the question, why, why make the distinction? It's because, as I say, books are bought based on expectancy value. And content can sometimes often be uh, not necessarily relevant to that, but not part of what makes someone buy the book. Um, I think that's a crucial thing to understand.
0: OK, so that leads me on I mean but this has led you to reflect on our our motivations for buying a book so what 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 are your thoughts around yeah what how does it work with motivation and book purchasing
1: um well exactly yes because I think that um sometimes the mere purchase of a book prior to us reading it can satisfy our motivations um now um the way I I look at this is that you um uh you, you can you can look at broad human motivations, and you can look at specific book buying motivations. Now, just to take the the, the second of those two. um, Obviously, um, there is an infinite range of motivations. You can have a book on on anything. Um, You cannot create a taxonomy of um, an infinite array of things. So you have to start narrowing it down. And some um, qualitative research that we did as a company a few years ago, Help me um, come to the conclusion that there were what you could refine down to three core book buying motivations, which I think are absolutely critical. And I, I would describe them as a hedonic motivation, the utilitarian motivation and the self-identificatory motivation. And just very briefly to talk about what I mean by that, yeah. I will buy a book because of the way it makes me feel, because of the experience that I'm paying for. Uh, it might make me cry, it might make me um, laugh. Um, it might, it's going to make me feel a certain way and I place a, a value in that experience. Um, it may be down to the quality of the writing. So a huge array of things that that might um, you know, uh, apply to. Um, utilitarian motivation. Now, in some senses, that's very obvious. You know, I, I might buy a book on growing vegetables because I want to get a practical knowledge about how to grow vegetables, uh, certainly right now um but it can also apply to fiction um we use uh fiction as a way to enhance our theory of mind we we use it to help us navigate vicariously through uh challenging uh moments in our lives and um social situations um i'd love to come back to that in relation to um what people have been reading in terms of fiction during lockdown actually and then thirdly this self-identificatory thing now um I would pull gifting under, the, under self-identification as a motivation simply because when I buy a book for you, I'm hoping it reflects back on me as the kind of person that I am, but I know you well enough to pick you something that you actually like. So although gifting is a motivation, I feel that it falls under my act of self-identification through buying a book. But broadly, I think this is a massive and often underappreciated uh, motivation for book sales. I might buy a book, a diet book, and my mere act of buying it makes me feel a couple of pounds lighter. Um, I might buy Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time and immediately feel smarter, even if I never make it past um, page five, which I've got to uh, admit, um, I, I don't think I did. Um, it's, I might buy a book by um, Alex Ferguson on leadership and like to think I'm slightly uh, closer to being a, a great leader. So it's... a it's, uh, it's a very important aspect of why we buy books. Um, they're not just for our shelves. They're, they are for how we, we imagine ourselves to be and how we like to think of ourselves. So those are, those are three really key motivations that I think once you start being aware of, you can see um, operating um, in the market in all sorts of interesting ways, often in conflict with one another. You often get a, a hedonic motivation um, liberating utilitarian motivation an example i'd use of this is sophie's world um you know the the entire history of western philosophy um is is a daunting prospect for reading um just as a thousand page textbook might be but if you present it as a novel involving a likable 12 year old girl called sophie um almost a sort of detective story then you massively boost this hedonic Um, appeal and value to it I'm you know I'm going to read a nice novel here I like novels and in the process all of a sudden this door is unlocked I'm gonna you know inject into myself the entire history of Western philosophy great you know it's um and I think that that approach is something which fascinates me because you see it in other areas like you know um uh Freakonomics perhaps you know again a daunting difficult potentially dry subject area Made hedonically appealing because it deals with stories, narratives, microeconomics, um, so that you know the, the, the way they work together is, is, um, is important to bear in mind. I talked about um, the broader human motivations um, that are common um, to us all and lie underneath um, um, book motivations, and what i 've used um, personally in um, the research that I 've been doing is something called self-determination theory. Um, which um, you know for those who are familiar with um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs there's, there's some similarities there but it's, um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a 21st century uh, approach I suppose you could describe it as it's um, based on a huge body of empirical research. Now uh, very simply um, it, it separates motivations out into to two camps. You have deficit needs which are the kind of needs like hunger, um, thirst, um, rest, uh, sex, but also psychological ones like self-esteem and, and certainty, calm, um, which until we've, um, we've satisfied them, um, preoccupy us. But once they're satisfied, once that deficit has uh, been dealt with, we're, we're, not, we're not so fussed about them. Um, they sit alongside um, what they describe as growth needs, and um, there are three of these: competence, um, autonomy, and relatedness. And the point here is that we can never have enough of them. We always want more. You can always feel slightly more competent, connected, and um, autonomous. Now, um, I, I found this is a tremendously useful model um, to try and lie lay underneath um, book buying motivations because my my belief is that they these motivations um, are tapped into and exploited in a way that correlates very directly with book sales. When a book sells in a huge volume, it's often not just because there's a positive hedonic angle to it, a positive utilitarian or self-identification angle to it, it's because the reader will feel a stronger sense of autonomy, competence, and relatedness by engaging with it. So just to take an example of, um, you know, I. Colouring in books, I think, is a good example here, because there is a period where you could say there was a depleted deficit need for for rest, for calm, that people felt. Um, uh, That creates this itching, gnawing need that's got to be satisfied. And books often work, I believe, by offering antidotes to needs, um, to problems. And uh, in that environment, you're looking for something that's going to satisfy that need. So that sort of sets the engine going. Now, if you think about a colouring in book, um, it offers the opportunity for autonomy in a very obvious sense, because um, I can use whatever pencils or pens I want to use and colour it in the way I want to use it. Um, I can immediately feel competent because when I look back and say, wow, it looks quite attractive. Um, it offers me a chance also for relatedness. And I think that comes in a couple of ways. One of the things that was so um, uh, interesting about that massive boom we saw in coloring in books a few years ago was people sharing them online uh, and, and the, almost a community sense to it and this sort of encouragement of one another. Oh, that's a beautiful bit of coloring and you've done there. Um, and uh, I think that was perhaps key of it, key, uh, key to it working. Another thing as well is when something becomes huge in that way, I think there's a, there's a raised um, relatedness value to it. If a book has sold a huge number of copies, um, if there's a genuine um, sort of boom going on in an area, that raises our expectancy uh, around the relatedness value that it has. So that, you know, all of those things, I think, came to play um, with Colouring In Books, as an example.
0: So you can you assign particular motivations to particular types of book, or is it is that too simplistic?
1: No, not at all. I, yeah. And I think it, um, I think it is something you can do. Um, I mean, in an obvious way, thinking about how um, you know we all need to eat, um, uh, cookery you know is an obvious thing that taps into our uh, frequ- frequently um, depleted um, need for food. But um, and but also you know. It, it, we exercise autonomy by choosing the type of cookery book that we, we want to um, engage with. We learn skills. Uh, I think it's an interesting thing to note that within um, cookery book sales, um, by far and away the biggest sub, subsection of that is um, uh, books that teach you how to um, cook um, quickly and simply easy cookery because immediately you're fast tracking someone's sense of competence. I buy this book, I'm, I'm going to feel competent at cooking. Um, but uh, you know, if you take again that um, example of people needing um, uh, having a motivation for feeling calm, it's not enough to just look at um, one area like um, uh, self development. Um, uh, you know, you again the coloring in book example that does not fit into the same um, out of the 150 or so um, categories of nonfiction that Nielsen offers you. Uh, as does um, a book like um, The Little Book of Hugo. So if you're trying to identify patterns um, which relate to broad macro motivations, you cannot stop at genres. Genres, you could say, are arbitrary abstractions that we place over the top of our the book cells that we see. But if you want to understand um, the 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 motivations underneath and see the patterns fully so you have to look um you know holistically across the picture so another example um which i often think about is um you know the books which you could argue um promise the reader that they will lose weight um you know you might find that in health food cookery you might find it in um, in fitness and diet but you might find it in other areas as well and uh, to take, um, you know, to go back to what we were saying earlier on about peak historical volume and combined volume. This is immediately very interesting to me because if you, um, if you take the combined volume of the top ten best-selling books that um, promise to the reader one way or the other, and they're not all in the same uh, genre, that you will lose weight by buying the book. You end up with a combined volume just from those top ten books of 7.5 million units, which is huge. Now, um, a while ago, I, I published a book where the promise was to the reader um, that you will live a longer life. And um, as part of the conversations I had with the author on this particular book, I, I, I you know, I, I, I talked about this with him. Rather alarmingly, I found that if you take the top ten, the best, the, the combined volume of the top ten best-selling books to offer the reader um, uh, a promise that they will live a longer life the volume is not the same. It's only, last time I checked, 121,000 units. Um, I used this example as a way, um, and I'll have to admit rather cynically and perhaps a bit uh, meanly, to suggest to him that we might want to emphasize the weight loss aspects to his book <laughs> as opposed to the live longer aspects of the book. But I find that fascinating. You ask anyone on the street, so well, what matters to you most? Do you want to live a long, healthy life or do you want to lose weight? What they tell you probably won't concord with what, a huge body of sales information tells you in terms of book sales the motivation to lose weight and perhaps satisfy that depleted self-esteem need which might be um driving it is enormous compared compared to um you know the motivation as shown through book sales, to live a long, healthy life, which is yeah, you know, as, as you might find it.
0: Oh, it was fascinating, and you've sort of developed. Uh, I mean, through the analysis, you've seen kind of peak cycles around particular categories of books. So, for example, like around words or grammar or spelling and things like that. That sort of type of language. But you reckon there's a there's a kind of cycle to that kind of publishing? Yeah,
1: definitely. I, I you know, again, this is um, it's something that I feel that as an industry. Um, we often talk about cycles. Anyone who's been around in the industry for quite a long time will, will it's almost a folk folklore um, sort of belief that there are cycles in publishing um, and that it will come around. And um, I think that if you take this sort of big data historical um, view, you immediately start seeing it's actually true. Um, certain areas will see, um, you know, some, sometimes every five to ten years, sometimes every two years, sometimes every twenty years, books that uh, um, sell far better than uh, you know books in the intervening years. Um, and one of the things that I've um, I've tried to do in my publishing is to identify what I I think of as dormant volcanoes, and these are those areas where um, you know that you know that every once in a while there'll be a, a big book. But you also know that it's been X number of years since the last explosion. So when I published the, um, the first GCHQ puzzle book, it had been something like um, 10 years since the big Sudoku explosion. Now, prior to that, I think you can find evidence every five to 10 years, you would get a big um, sort of puzzle um, quiz book. Um, it had been quite a long time since there was anything like that in the market. Um, The reason why I think this works is not because I think there's some kind of, you know, big celestial wheel turning around, um, you know, in a tidal way. It's not because of that. It's because and it comes back to that expectancy value thing. I think it's about how I believe books really sell on the basis of our assumption that they carry novelty and and, and quality. I want to know that for me, this book is new i don 't already have it. if it 's going to have value to me, it has to be something i don 't already have and the quality is I, it has to be something that is worth me having now um, novelty therefore is is critical to, to book sales. certain areas allow for a far greater degree they 've got far greater tolerance uh, for novelty than other areas. If so you think about memoir, um, the reason why there are it's one of the biggest areas of the market, I would argue is that there's an inherent capacity for um, novelty everywhere you look, because everyone writing their memoir is different from someone else writing their memoir. Grammar books are not the same. There's only so many ways that you can um, present a grammar book and make it feel genuinely novel. So as an area, it doesn't allow for so much um, variation and, 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 and tolerance for sales. And um, you know you've got um, you know the example I gave of um, Mrs Hinch earlier. Um, one of the reasons that I was so keen that we went for that as a book, um, you know, was all sorts of reasons. We were very very keen as a, as a team. But it, um, I was conscious that um, if you look at books on cleaning and tidying your home, um, you can see evidence that's a five to ten year cycle there, and it had been um, five years since the last one. Something else just to add on to that is uh, um, two things. Um, firstly, I think you sometimes see a, a strong contextual um, motivation, a, a need for something combined with a cycle. And I think that's something which happened again with the, the hinge. And the reason I think that is because I think in a period, as we we're saying, where people are feeling um, um, perhaps in need of something that helps them feel calm, offering them... Uh, a way to feel in control of their domestic sphere and achieve calm through that, especially when you feel completely out of control of the bigger picture, is is a way to um, satisfy a contextual need. If that's combined with a cycle as well, then I think that's something which you you, you expect will work very well. Just the last thing to say on that, um, uh, which I I, I think has been one of the key things that I've um, picked up from... Um, doing this research is the way in which successive iterations of of books, um, in in the sense of the, the kind of the the propositions that they offer, um, every time one sees a, a, a doubling of the iteration, you see a halving of the value. Pretty much, it's not it's it's, not, it's normally between thirty five to forty five percent. So, in other words, if you whatever book it might be, it might be a diet book um, or, or a puzzle book, um, what you often see is that the first iteration um, achieves a certain volume. The second, if ostensibly it carries the same elements and is satisfying the same motivation, same motivation, will sell almost incredibly reliably about 40% of the preceding volume. And then the third one will again, sell about 40% of that, that volume. It's such a, a startlingly ubiquitous phenomenon that I, um, I rather grandly call it a universal ratio in the paper that you're very kindly publishing. Yeah. Because it, it does feel to me like it, it is exactly that. It's a very strange, um, very real phenomenon that if you, if you repeat something that's pretty much the same, you get a halving of the sales. And I think it's a, what you're seeing is um, a halving of the novelty, you put it that way. So and, and an interesting way, you know, aspect of that is that whatever that first volume is, um, say, Joe Wick's first book um, sells 1.2 million. The second book sells, say, 600 or whatever, and, and so on. The same applies to... Uh, um a book that might sell 120,000. you you see the, the second book sell you know sort of 50 60 and and so on the ratio applies wherever your starting point is um
0: so that's a really really good insight for publishers definitely and and we i mean thinking about the last few years and we've had brexit here in the uk what yeah. was what kind of motivations did people want to <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what was driving them to, to buy what kind of book in the time it brings it? Um, well, I think, I mean, I,
1: as I think I said, I, I think that the way I, the way I look at uh, you know, books when they work in a really big way is, is, is rather like antidotes or um, solutions to problems. What What does not work typically is when you mirror back a problem to a reader and a consumer. And I think if you, then ask the question, well, what, what is the problem right now? What is the lack? What What is the ailment that, that a market has at any given point in time? Then you can start asking, well, what might be the the, the suitable antidote to that? Um, so during Brexit, I think you saw a number of things happen. Um, you know, there's a wave of humour. Uh, there was that um, brilliant Enid Blyton uh, parody, Five Go Mad on Brexit Island or whatever it was called. Um, Uh, you know in a period where everyone's feeling intensely frustrated at the absurdity of it all um, out of control humor you know it allows you to let off steam i think um in a period of uncertainty books which offer a sense of really concrete certainty um will do well so i think you you saw uh, i think a bit of an upsurge in serious non-fiction partly as a response to that you know um there were a number of books like the Jordan Peterson and Sapiens and um, the Matthew Walker Why We Sleep which really took off during that period um one of the things I found absolutely fascinating was um memoir now for a lot of uh, for a long time I think most within the industry had talked endlessly about the the death of celebrity autobiographies um in the in the knowledge that Back in 2008, there was um, you know, a, a peak, you know, you had um, a huge volume selling. There were, I think, something like 21 memoirs that year that sold over 100,000 copies. That was on decline. And um, during the 2010s, you, you, you know, there were a couple of years where maybe three to four books, not all celebrity in, you know, in any case, but only three to four books might sell over 100,000 copies. What you started seeing in 2017 was that number go up, I think first it went to six and then in um, 2018 it went to nine. And then in um, 2019 you saw 17 memoirs sell over hundred thousand copies. Now I think that's absolutely staggering. Um, and so interesting because it, firstly, it, it contradicts any assumption that what you were seeing back in 2008 was purely um, to do with the retail landscape that supermarkets were taking a lot of books. Yes, they were, but I don't think that's the full picture. What I take away from that is thinking how in a period of great uncertainty about how the hell do you live your life a memoir is something that we naturally navigate towards because I look at how someone else has lived how they've navigated through grief uh dealt with their mortality gained success I look to see how someone else has lived in order to understand how I can live and I think what you saw in you know 2008 2009 was of course was a financial crash a period where a lot of people might have quite reasonably asking that question. I think you again saw the same thing, you know, in the wake of Brexit. The question, how do I live my life right now? And a memoir is a vehicle for carrying some lessons around that. So that was one of the most interesting, I think, um, sort of big explosions um, of book sales during um, the Brexit period.
0: Of course, now we're talking in a time of corona, um, and I know you've been... Trying to study the market at the moment as well to see can you pick up any Corona trends in the book market? Uh, I,
1: I, I hope so. I think so. Yeah. No, I I, I, I do actually. I mean, one thing that you can say straight away is that because the retail landscape um, has been completely upended. Um, you, you know, you you've you've seen the closure of um, you know high street shops and you've seen um, the growth of online sales in a, in a really dramatic way what that enables you to do is to look at Amazon, um, around various countries. And I think, um, see it as being a very realistic barometer of people's urgent, um, immediate, um, motivations for buying books. Um, so I think it's been a a really fascinating period for anyone who's interested in trying to look at what, what people are, are really motivated by in their book purchases. Um, I've been doing a lot of looking at, um, you know, what's been selling internationally uh, and and talking to to colleagues um, that I know, um, you know, um, in other countries. And it's been fascinating to see how you've seen um, trends that really are international. So, um, you know, uh, as a snapshot, I think in late April I was looking and you, you, Albert Camus, The Plague, um, was Everywhere, actually, apart from in the UK. And I, I don't know whether that's because of some uh, embarrassing Francophobia or dislike of existential philosophers, but um, every other country you looked at, and it was the second best selling book in Japan uh, at one point. Um, that came amidst what uh, um, a Polish friend of mine described as plague literature, almost as though people were turning to narratives, um, fictional narratives, uh, mostly. Um, in the past set in the past but sometimes dystopian ones in the future um to try and make sense of um what was going on right now and i think that's a key thing um to pick up from it is that if the present feels profoundly unsafe where do you look uh for safety and for for certainty um where do you go for your escapism you can't escape into the present so the past offers escapism um, you can also look to the future from um, a more dystopian view. And um, it's interesting to see the Peter May lockdown book doing so well recently. You know, it's, um, I think that's symptomatic of people thinking, well, how might this go? You know, even if it's dystopian, it's sort of offering you some semblance of certainty um, about how things might pan out in an uncertain world. And that, that's something which um, I think that, that historical angle... Is something we've seen before. Um, one reason why I think there will be one or two really big history books in the next couple of years is because um, in the wake of the First and Second World Wars, that's exactly what you saw. Um, you had um, H.D. Wells' outline of history in 1919. Um, you had a, in the US, there's a book called The American Past. I can't remember the author, um, I think in 1945 or slightly after. It's almost as though. If you, as a market, as a population, you're going through something in the present that's just so um, uh, significant and, and unsettling, there's a requirement almost to take the long view, to put it into perspective. You can retreat into the past for safety, for nostalgia, um, for escapism, but it also offers you a way just to put the present into some form of perspective. So that's something we're going to see more of, I think, and already are seeing. Um, I think also... Um, Sorry, I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts on this, um, so you'll have to shut me up if I go on a bit too much. I mean, just early on, you saw um, something really noticeable just in terms of immediate um, motivations, which was um, people buying books for their children, educational books, entertainment books. Um, You know, in April, I think something like two thirds of the Amazon top 100 was taken up with books for for kids. I think parents were thinking, how do I achieve a sense of competence as a parent right now? I need, I can't send them to school. I, I need to do this in a, in a different way. I think that's given over quite a lot recently towards more entertainment. And I think a lot of the children's ed- educational books have been overtaken by story books. Um, perhaps as parents have become a little bit more, um, <laughs> desperate to offer some amusement as opposed to, um, education. Um, other things you've seen, um, anything offering people a sense of financial health or spiritual resilience and self-sufficiency. And a a stunning thing that I think is is to see internationally is um, the, the, um, the revival of a couple of backlist books. Um, one of them, um, rich dad, poor dad, uh, which I think must be about 15, 20 years old and another one, um, right from 1937, Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich. Um, you know, published in the same year as Del Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. So, you know, both those books being, um, you, know, uh, some, you know, something which emerged from the, the, the Great Depression. Um, they've just kind of shot up in almost every country I've looked at. As, and I think it's people thinking, well, I don't trust my company to look after me. I don't really feel I can trust the government right now. The only way I'm going to be safe is if I take my financial self-sufficiency and resilience into my own hands and i i think again that's something we're going to see see more of um, sorry i got lots of lots of thoughts here
0: um yeah, you're giving examples of books that are that seem to be doing well in the corona times
1: yeah um as i say i mean it has definitely evolved i think you've you know you've seen um certain areas wax and and, and wane uh, one thing that i think again has been fascinating just in the the last couple of weeks is the market has once again Completely transformed um, in the wake of the the George George Floyd um, protests, um, you've seen the, the the you know the the, the markets complexion really alter. And it's I have to say it's in most countries I've looked, it's really it, it's not had as much an impact um, anywhere as much as it has done in the UK and the US. A little bit in Germany, but um, looking um, last week, I think half of the the books in the Amazon um, top one hundred in the states. Um, had as a theme or topic um, race. And half of those books were aimed at children, which I thought was fascinating, that you have a, a, a huge number of parents thinking, how can I um, educate my children right now in, in what's going on? And again, you've seen um, something happening here to a lesser extent. And I, I think, um, you know, to bring it back to some of the thoughts that I, I've got about motivations, I think there's a very urgent, um, compelling need for, Uh, for people to to learn right now. There's a utilitarian motivation. I want to learn uh, about these issues and educate myself. I think there's also a very strong self-identificatory one as people are buying books because they want to feel that they are supporting um the protests so again you've got these these really powerful motivations and just in the space of a couple of weeks um you know the markets um changed the last thing i'd say is you know sort of in terms of um what we're going to see over the next couple of years and this could be a a fatal thing to um talk about as i demonstrate that i'm completely wrong about all of this angus um I, i i do think that you know you are going to see more books which take that longer view i wouldn't be surprised if you see a sweeping historical epic um emerge um i think one thing I'm, i've been thinking about is whether there might be scope for a real bodice ripping yarn a la a book um called forever amber that was published yeah. in
0: 1943
1: yeah. and we've want, we're not wanting to be too prurient about this i think that a a depleted need that a lot of people have right now is um, for for physical contact with other people, Um, as well as that long view. I I think it wouldn't be surprising to get some kind of sweeping historical epic that's quite raunchy um, doing well. Um, I could be completely wrong about that. Um, Books that help us make sense by applying that historical angle. I think there will be a bit more dystopian stuff. I also think that as people become more, contracted within their bubbles. I wouldn't actually be surprised if uh, a certain amount of paranoia sets in and you might see a bit of a wave of um, books that tap into a sort of conspiracy theory approach, the kind of stuff like you know, the Graham Hancock stuff that we saw
0: right. some
1: 25 years ago. And I think actually just in terms of fiction, we have seen a bit of that recently. I mean, some of the books that have been doing very well in terms of contemporary fiction, you've had things like The, the Family Upstairs, the couple next door, you know, there's a growing sense of slight social paranoia. (laughs) And um, sadly, I don't think that's gonna go away very soon. Um, I I do think the whole thing about resilience will carry on. I think, um, without wanting to be too depressing, if we're on the verge of a serious financial recession, one thing I'd be very surprised if we don't see is um, a resurgence of nostalgia in some form or another. And again, it's that long view, but I think that typically in periods of um, recession, you do see a, a boom in nostalgia publishing. And I think it's, we, we don't look back to our parents' generation often for the answers. We kind of grew up with them. We know what they think. We don't look back three generations ago because it's, it's, it's too far ago to really um, uh, sort of have much purchase on what we're going through. We tend to look at back around 50 to 60 years to say our sort of, you know, our, two generations ago. So, you know, you could say that um, in the 70s, people were looking back to the late Edwardian period, In the financial crash, people were looking back to the 50s. I think that there'll probably be a number of books based in the 60s and 70s, um, books that offer a sense of uplift, but, uh, you know, that sort of, yeah, I don't know, I, mean, I was thinking about um, a book like um, A Kestrel for a Knave, or is um, it Saturday Night and Sunday morning? Yeah. You know, it, I, I think there will be a few books like that, um, memoirs perhaps as well as fiction that we, we start seeing as people again look to the past for answers about the present and the future.
0: Well thank you so much Dan, uh, I mean it's good note to finish on with your predictions for the future and we can really <laughs> examine them in a little while to see <laughs> well, how well you've done. Dangerous and probably a bit stupid. Yeah but uh, it, I do encourage you to read Dan's article it's coming out in my journal Logos fairly soon and I'll post on the website the link when we've got that article ready uh, but thank you so much Dan for sparing the time and for, thank you for, for fascinating thoughts around motivations and your article pursues some of those threads in in more detail so uh, thank you very much
1: thank you thank you I've enjoyed it